My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand terrorism through the lens of the Western bubble. Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, and we analyze these by using the concept of the Western bubble. But Balder, what is the Western bubble? With that, we mean the way European and North American societies in particular often fool themselves about who they are and what they do. Uh, they live under a delusion that being democratic and liberal automatically makes them the good guys in history, does not properly analyzing their own behavior and the damage that that behavior often causes, both at home and abroad. Their fight against terrorism is, of course, a great case study of this. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure. Well, if we can call it that at least. Um, in order to analyze what each topic uh, means, we are answering the following questions. What are the facts where we provide a factual basis for our analysis? What is the bubble where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? What is the personal bias where we see how leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? What is the damage where we look into how and why West the Western bubble is harmful? And finally, what is the future, where we lay out how each topic might develop down the line. If you would like to know more about how this podcast started or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. This being said, uh, let's get to it. Our facts. Um, on September 11th, 2001, nearly 3,000 people were killed in the terrorist attacks of the World Trade Center in New York City in the United States. Um, The attack resulted in the largest loss of life by a foreign attack on U.S. American soil. And as a response, the U.S. president, the then U.S. president uh, Bush, led the military invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, leading those leading to long entanglements of war in those in those countries, causing instability and costing the U.S. economy six trillion uh, U.S. dollars. This led to the war on terror, a badly defined global struggle of Western forces against perceived enemies. And this Western struggle and its general approach to terrorism in the 21st century is the main focus of today's episode. Of course, the tactic of terrorism is used globally and typically much more damaging and dangerous in other parts of the world than in Western societies. For example, the Global Terrorism Index counted 190,000 terrorist attacks since the 1970s, but the vast majority of them took place outside the Western, uh, outside the Western, well, the West. Similarly, in 2021, there were 7,142 deaths from terrorism, with an only uh, and only a tiny fraction of this uh, came from within Europe. Um, terrorism as a tactic uh, is employed by individuals or groups rather than a uh, yeah rather than a group idea or ideology itself. It is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. Breaking this down. First, terrorism is motivated by political aims and motives. Second, terrorism uh, terrorist tactics are violent or equally important threatening violence. And third, it is designed to have a far-reaching psychological uh, repercussions beyond the immediate victim or target. It is designed to inflict fear. And with this, now that we have uh, the definition of terrorism, we can move on to today's discussion. Boulder, what is the bubble here? What is the bubble about terrorism in the West? Well, terrorism is in many ways a very good example of a vehicle that leads to uh, bubbles for in general, not just the Western bubble, but bubbles in general. Why is that? Um, human beings, we have a clear bias towards insider and outsider groups. We need in some way psychologically insider-outsider groups. This, this is something that we see 
um, at a very young age, at, at, at high school, you've got little groups of friends who then talk to each other as if they are the best and they talk about other groups sort of in an, in an antagonistic way um, that leads to often to bullying and those kinds of things where without any rational basis, you have people associating themselves with one set of, peop one set of uh, people and disassociating themselves with another set of people. And this, this happens an awful lot um, later on in life as well. We continuously associate ourselves with political parties or with cultural groups, um, with obviously our family, and we disassociate ourselves from those we believe that disagree with us and um, those that we believe are on the wrong side of the political spectrum, those that we believe have harmed us in some way. We create insider-outsider models all the time as human beings. Terrorism is a amazing um, vehicle in the sense that that then allows us to indicate an outsider enemy. There are terrorists out there. There are people who are willing to kill us, but we don't really see them. We don't really know who they are, but we can use them as the enemy versus us, the good guys, right? We are defending ourselves against evil uh, terrorists. And it has been used as such throughout history, not just in the West, but by many, many different civilizations, the moment you put the label terrorist on the outsider, that's the moment that you can clearly define yourself as the good guy fighting evil. And I mean, so, so this, I, I mean, this idea or this concept we already discussed in the, in the last episode um, about the hollowing out of, of institutions and about the badly needed outside threat uh, for the West. And before that was uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and then you had communism, evil Russia. And then after the 1990s, um, when again, the, the West seemed to have won history uh, and it turned out it didn't, then there was a need for a new outside enemy. And then I think it was 9-11, which delivered that enemy to, to the West, right? Exactly that. I mean, and we, we talked about this in a previous episode, where um, without having that existential threat, it is very difficult to mobilize society. It's very difficult to focus. And the 20th century enemies were, to, in many ways, truly existential. I mean, there's no doubt that communism and Nazi Germany were an existential threat to a lot of other countries surrounding them. No doubt about that. Then the moment that you've got the 1990s and everything seems to be good, all of a sudden you run into this problem. You look around and you say, okay, brilliant. Everyone is going to be like us. Everyone is going to be free, liberal, democratic. It's going to copy the US model or the general Western model. And then deep down inside as a society and also at an individual level, you start realizing, hang on, um, this is kind of uncomfortable because if we are all... 8 billion people working towards the same goal, um, how do we define ourselves? We are used as human beings to define ourselves against, uh, not just about who we are, but also about who we are not, who we are fighting against. This is, has been our modus operandi throughout history. And um, then the moment something like 9-11, as you mentioned, comes in, that's a brilliant thing to jump on and to say, ah, you see, we, even though most of humanity, 99.9% .9 of humanity is on the path towards liberal democracy, there's still some backward, violent murderers who are about to ruin it for us all. So now we can motivate all, um, and, and 
motivate ourselves, we can activate resources to fight that enemy. We still have an insider-outsider model there available. The problem, of course, is that terrorism in the 21st century has never been an existential threat to the West. It has been killing people, it has been murdering people, but it has never been an existential means of making the West collapse in any way, shape or form. Mm. And, and that we say because I mean the, the numbers are simply not backing it up because it's just that compared to other factors, not that many people die through terrorism or is it because uh, the ideas carried, well, I mean, and because again, there's always a political aim behind uh, terrorism as a tactic or because those ideas cannot threaten the, the Western system enough? I think both of these things, those are both relevant to keep in mind. The first is, and you mentioned this in the fact sheet, that terrorism itself is not an ideology. You mentioned terrorism is a tactic. To say someone is a terrorist is a meaningless statement, except for the fact that then supposedly that person at some point in their lives has used a terrorist tactic, has, has, has engaged in a terrorist act. Um, it says nothing about their belief system. It says nothing about what they want to accomplish. In the case of 9-11 and then the war on terror um, following that disaster, and it, it was an absolute tragedy, of course. Let's not beat around the bush. I mean, 9-11 was absolutely awful with 3,000 innocent people um, being murdered. This type of terrorism... Um, the people behind this terrorism, Al-Qaeda and associated groups, Osama bin Laden and associated leaders, were never actually that all that interested in the West in itself. This may come as a shock to a lot of Westerners who believe that somehow it's all about them. But you know what? It wasn't all about them. It was mostly out of a um, anger, hatred towards the fact that their own local leadership was seen as puppets of the West, right? Um, the West has a, had a long history uh, throughout the 20th century, certainly, of putting secular or relatively secular leaders in place in, in the Middle East as sort of neo-colonial projects to keep the Middle East under control and the, and the Maghreb region as well. Um, think about Egypt, people like um, uh, Mubarak, um, think about the Saudi uh, and, and uh, other Middle Eastern regimes, propped up regimes that maybe on the surface are Islamic, but in reality follow a Western line. And the main motivation, the main goals of Al-Qaeda and others in their use of terrorist tactics was to get the West out of their own region as they saw it with the dreams of creating a caliphate and, and all those kinds of things, the things that um, Osama bin Laden has been talking about. This is not some deep secrets that we are just uncovering. It has been very clear from the very beginning, speech after speech. This is obvious from um, what they've been saying. And so the idea that these terrorist tactics were aimed at collapsing Western society or even murdering Westerners itself, is complete nonsense. It was about getting the West out. As a result, this was never about destroying the West. As a result, it was never an existential threat. Existential threat. That's the first bit. And then the second issue you mentioned um, is that the groups were had never had any capacity to actually fight the whole Western machine. Uh, in many ways, the West shot itself horribly in the foot, and maybe later on in this uh, podcast we'll talk more about that. Uh, the 
the idea that um, the West has been deeply damaged by the war on terror is not because of the ability of Al-Qaeda, but the ability of the West to actually hurt itself really badly by going into Afghanistan and Iraq. The, the numbers, the seriousness of the organization was never enough uh, on behalf of Al-Qaeda or even ISIS to actually properly threaten Western stability, Western security, anything like that. If you listen to the introduction episode, you know that I study uh, international affairs with a focus on international security um, and a, a master's degree currently. And so obviously we've also talked about terrorism. And one of the strategies, um, part of the tactic of terrorism is a provocation, is that um, through an attack, you provoke a bigger force, ideally the government, into an excessive almost disproportional uh, reaction in order to demonstrate kind of like to demonstrate oh the other force is evil to give yourself more legitimacy the great achievement from osama bin laden's perspective um, not from a humanist perspective of course but once again uh, osama bin laden being the the leader of, of al-qaeda and the so-called i mean kind of strategist or, or, or kind of planner behind the 9-11 attacks exactly who was then eventually uh but but years later under the obama administration found by seal team six and assassinated um osama bin laden Big success, major success from his own perspective was not murdering 3,000 people on 9-11. Um, he didn't probably didn't care much about them. He probably thought it was kind of deserved, you know, because he did have obviously a strong, strong feelings about the West. Uh, but that wasn't what his main accomplishment was, nor it was, was what, what his main goal was. His main achievement was the overreaction of the United States and allies after 9-11. Uh, the, idea, the idea of them going into Afghanistan and then a year later into Iraq with their full force, um, military power, diplomatic power, economic power activated and thereby over time weakening its own position, weakening who they, their, their own ability to influence things in the world. That is the main achievement, the main legacy from Osama bin Laden. And by the way... Um, Look at now, uh, we've had Joe Biden, President Biden, going around in the Middle East and horribly failing at any of his goals in the Middle East this past week, the, the week before re uh, recording this episode. That is a huge sign of this. Now, this is not just due to 9-11. It's not just due to Osama bin Laden. But US power in the Middle East and worldwide has been significantly reduced since 9-11. And a large reason behind that, an important reason, is... Uh, their overreaction to 9-11. Now, the, an, an interesting thought experiment, and this is purely an abstract thought experiment, because from a political and psychological perspective, it was simply not possible. But what if George W. Bush, on the 12th of September 2001, had stood on the rubble of the World Trade Center, and rather than start a process that would eventually lead to an awful lot of violence and destruction and the weakening of U.S. foreign policy, he would have said, we're going to mourn the losses of the 3,000 innocent victims. We're going to have two weeks of mourning. I've instructed the CIA and my intelligence agencies to go after Osama bin Laden and his gang. But beyond that, we're not changing anything in the way we do. We're going to learn some long-term lessons about maybe how we should behave towards uh, Middle Eastern states and all that. But we're not going to take any further action because that's exactly what they want. And we're not going to give them what they want. If 
George W. Bush had taken that position, again, which politically was impossible, but if he had been able to do that, the United States now in 2022 would have been a much, much stronger country worldwide. They would have been in a much better position, both internally as well as in their relations with others. And the, the long-term consequence, especially of 9-11, was then the war of terror. And I mean, so, so this is now the moment when we get back to it. Um, the war on terror is such an interesting idea, right? Or concept. At least I've, I've never understood it. Oh, well, I mean, and well, I mean, I never understood in university. Before, for me, it was very clear. Oh, there are evil people out there and we need to fight a war against them because they're all terrorists. I mean, that's the that's the idea behind it, right? Yeah, that's that's good when university creates confusion in your mind. That's what it's there for, right? Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. So very, very simplistically, and I, I know that I'm cutting quite a few corners here, but very simplistically, what happened was 9-11 happens, 12th of September. We have to... Uh, we have to get the people who did this. Oh, but there's a problem. The 19 people who did this already died in the airplanes themselves. They they committed a suicide attack. Okay, but now we have to go after Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda are the ones responsible. Osama bin Laden is one, is the one responsible for this. So far, completely legitimate, right? That makes a lot of sense to go after Al-Qaeda. That's what the United States absolutely had to do. Uh, you have to punish Osama bin Laden. You have to catch him, obviously. But then the problem is that Al-Qaeda is not a very clearly defined group uh, with card-carrying members. Osama bin Laden was hard to find somewhere in Afghanistan or Pakistan at the time. Uh, it wasn't completely clear whether that would actually satisfy the need for revenge. So the United States said, well, so 19 people have died. The larger organization of Al-Qaeda is still pretty small. Pretty hard to catch, just instructing the CIA to go after them will not be enough to soothe our anger and our frustration and our pain. So then we're going to go after terrorists in general. Okay, but then the problem becomes terrorists are not an ideology. They are not following the same path. No one walks around with a t-shirt saying, I'm a terrorist. People sometimes commit a terrorist act based on their ideology. They, it's not the other way around. And so... The fight against terrorism or terrorists in general didn't make any sense because you can't identify who they are. Then it became, okay, how can we then fight something? How can we get our revenge? We are going to identify those countries that um, actually support terrorists, that support Al-Qaeda and that support our other terrorist networks. Um, look at Afghanistan, but also potentially look at Iran, look at Sudan at the time, even North Korea. Uh, see who is who is potentially um, a, a enabler of terrorism. But then that is also tricky. That becomes difficult to define. How can you show that North Korea in any way is connected to jihadis and terrorism? You can't because they're not. So how do you deal with that? Well, we need a slightly broader concept. Let's make it the war on terror rather than terrorism. And how, why is that so brilliant for us? Because terror can be defined in any way we like. Anyone we don't like is now part of terror. Anyone who somehow is a threat to us is uh, our enemy. And now we've got a brilliant outsider group that we as the good insiders can struggle against, can fight against and can wage war against. So now all of a sudden you've got this enormous leeway in choosing which fights to pick, where to fight. And that then eventually led to the United States even going into um, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, basically starting a genuinely global war that had 
essentially nothing to do anymore with Al-Qaeda or 9-11. And then, and this is where I would like to move into the to, to, into the third question, what is the personal bias? Because then this global war on terror wasn't just a military operation, but it became a, a common mission, right, of the West. Is that at least I, again, I mean, I grew up very much after 9-11. I mean, so that was, I because I, I once learned that you are no longer a millennial if you cannot remember a life before 9-11. Uh, that's very much the case for me. So I, I, I grew up, uh, I think it was three years at the time. Um, so I grew up after 9-11 and I do not remember a life without security checks at the airport. I do not remember a life um, where there isn't just some, I mean, I, yeah, I do not remember a life where the West wasn't active in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, now, <laughs> but, uh, but well, so basically not until the, the summer of 2021. Um, so for me, I very much grew up with a sentiment of, Terror is an uh, is an enemy to to everything we stand for, um, and that I think uh, is 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 then all embodied by. Uh, so I did my exchange semester in in Israel, um, well online because of COVID, but I did there. And in Israel, this is I think a bit more extreme than than in the West in, in the rest of the West. I mean, we we once defined Israel to be part of the the West. I think that was in our introduction episode. Um, uh, because there, sitting in class, I had nine courses, and three out of those nine courses somehow dealt with terrorism. Uh, terrorism and law, um, terrorism and counterterrorism tactics, and I think they're just a general terrorism class. And um, in uh, I still remember that in one of the first sessions, uh, the, again, the professor showed a video, a very graphical video of someone at the, I mean, basically it was a Palestinian who in a truck, who, who drove into the border into a border post uh, of, of, of is it basically into Israeli soldiers? There was a very graphical image that I was not I was not prepared to see, but I think if you are if you're witnessing this or if you're being shown these type of this this type of material this very graphic material all day long or transfer this to the United States if you if you see the the video footage of uh, the airplanes hitting hitting uh, the World Trade Center. Every day, I think you become like you become part of this thinking of this group thinking. Ooh, there is evil terrorism out there, and we are threatened by it, and we need to we need to fight it. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 in many ways dehumanizing the terrorists um, for taking these horrible acts, which is which is terrible because by dehumanizing it, you make it seem as if they are just monsters that cannot be in any way influenced or dealt with right which is and at the same time over humanizing or at least very deeply humanizing uh, the victims and the society that is fighting those terrorists right that's that's it. so uh, we all have seen the uh, hopefully uh, our listeners as well uh, we've seen these images so that you know what we're talking about and it's it's horrible it's horrific to see people jumping out of the World Trade Center. And then at the same time, you see um, Osama bin Laden and he becomes a stereotypical, you know, Bond villain um, without without any humanity behind him in the way that he's being portrayed. And the result of that is that our personal bias is one that obviously we are fighting evil. We're obviously the good guys, we're innocent and we're fighting evil. Whereas in reality, it's much more complex than that. Um, victims might direct victims might be innocent, but Western society should very carefully think about how their actions led to this. But that is not something you at a personal level do anymore, because you just have this image of evil versus good, good versus evil. How is this reflected in in then in then the government work? Because I mean, people who work for for government agencies are 
are, are also people, individuals who are subject to this for 20 years now. Um, I mean, you because you worked with with governments. I mean, just just the general sense. I mean, how I assume that the war on terror has influenced almost any any agency somehow, right? Yeah, and it's it's very important to repeat over and over again that we're when we talk about these things in the West, we're not talking about some kind of conspiracy. These people working in these governments, they're not. They don't come together twice a year and think, how can we mess with our populations and how can we create some big conspiracy, some 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 big. Uh, method of controlling everyone and making them our puppets, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about normal human beings working for the government, working in ministries, people I work with on a regular basis. And uh, these people, just like they live in the bubble of fighting for democracy, previous episode we talked about this, and, and liberalism, they just want to do their job in a good way, in the best way possible very often, some, some are a little bit less idealistic, but a lot of them genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. And what you saw about 10 years ago, and then I saw it very closely because of my work, people working in government agencies completely obsessed with terrorism. Not because, um, simply they were told to focus on that, which was part of it. Uh, Governments told them you have to focus on terrorism, but also because they were bombarded on a daily basis with messages about, hey, we've arrested again 10 terrorists. We've just avoided a huge disaster in um in 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 the hague we've we've arrested a group a sleeper cell that was about to kill hundreds of people at this shopping center whatever those kinds of um messages were continuously streamed towards civil servants and towards governments and as a result when you spoke to them their only well their main interest was to stop terrorists from tearing apart society and from killing innocent civilians there was very little attention paid to other, much more threatening issues um, that they should have dealt with, right? And longer-term issues, both at a foreign policy level and at a domestic level. From a statistical perspective, and you mentioned this briefly in the introduction as well, from a statistical perspective, uh, terrorism has never been a major source of deaths. It's it's never been particularly important in in actuarial lists. Um, They've never been particularly uh, relevant in terms of what are the chances of you dying tomorrow. For that, you have to look at illnesses, you have to look at traffic deaths, you have to look at falling, you have to look at fires, you have to look at all kinds of uh, ways that you can die, and none of them contains terrorism, right? Uh, Where is the war on falling? Where is the war on, on fires? Where is the war on, well, on something very very serious cancer. Where is the war on cancer? If, if only a small fraction of the resources dedicated to the war on terror had been dedicated to de- developing new ways to fight cancer, a lot of people's lives would be saved by now. But instead, they weren't because these government agencies were continuously obsessing over fighting terrorism. Not because they want to do bad, not because they're unscrupulous, simply because that is the bubble that they live in. Exactly. That is the bubble and that is their personal bias. And something you just mentioned, and this is the last thing um, connected to the to the bubble and personal bias I want to talk about, is the media and all of this. Um, because I mean I'm just in the in the research up to this episode, if you if you didn't search for something, something terrorism, there's uh, there's an unbelievable amount of information 
of newspapers dealing with this, writing this. There's so many indexes or uh, or research. Uh, well, I mean, so much research on on just this topic of terrorism, where I mean, the the media must must play a, a big part in this as well, right? Uh, where it's not necessarily, and again, this. Is, we have to be careful here with wording because we don't want to sound like conspiracy theorists and, and we're not, um, but where the media should ask more critically, um, how are these funds being allocated? How much does it, how much sense does it make to focus your entire national security strategy on terrorism? Right, but you don't, yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't need a conspiracy to explain this mechanism, right? It is not, again, some people coming together and, and creating creating some movement, some explicit movement. It is people feeling the pressure professionally to go for the most exciting stories. Editors who want um, their readers to be somehow interested in what they publish. And cancer does not sell very well. People don't really want to hear about cancer. Fires or falling are not particularly exciting stories unless a celebrity dies because of it. But most of the time, you will not sell newspapers, you will not sell TV, um, TV time by focusing on those things. Terrorism, however, bombs exploding in shopping centers, even though it hardly ever happens, and the statistical chance of you as a media consumer being affected by it is minimal. It's not zero, but it's minimal. Um, your psyche, your emotional state of mind responds to those kinds of news items. So the media they will focus on that. And if then they hear from the government that these things are very important and the government wants them to focus on that, then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where the balance between published articles and news segments on terrorism versus the real threats that are facing Western society is completely out of whack. That's not because of a conspiracy. It is simply because of human nature and that we feel threatened and scared and also weirdly excited, maybe in a slightly perverted kind of way, by this concept of terrorism because it goes to the core of how we define ourselves. We, the insiders versus the outsiders. We, the good guys versus the bad guys. Cancer is not a really good enemy to fight. Terrorists are. And this leads us perfectly into talking about what are the damages here. Um, so, so are there any and what are they exactly? Well, where to start, right? Because there's an awful lot. But I think the way to best organize this is in three main pillars. Um, the, the, the first is this has led to terrible, disastrous foreign policy with all kinds of horrible consequences uh, for the outside world and the position of the West. The second is the changing nature of the West because of this reaction to terrorism, who we are and who we want to be. And the third, perversely enough, is an actual increase in threats and in terrorism because of our reaction. So, so let's start with the first first one, bad foreign policy. Um, is it only the war on terror, so only bad hard power foreign policy, so only military use, or is it also, aside from that, just something more on in general, I assume that the war on terror that inspired every single act of foreign policy, it was suddenly no longer about development, but uh, there was also, I don't know, there was probably funds being directed towards anti-terrorism work in the ground. So is it is it only militarily or is it also no, it, the other way? You're absolutely right. There's much more to it than that. Um, the, the quote from George W. Bush brings to mind, you're either with us or you're against us. What it did all of a sudden... Whereas there was this dream of creating a utopian liberal democratic world, all of a sudden it was literally, you're either with us or you're against us. That was the quote, right? Uh, you have to choose sides. 
if you do not support us, the United States and the West in our fight against terror, then you are our enemy. So all of a sudden it creates this very antagonistic dynamic within international relations, completely going against a long period of trying to get the world come together more closely and follow a sort of liberal dream, right? The, the result of that is that lots of governments were forced to choose and by choosing and by explicitly uh, putting themselves on the side of Washington or on the side of European capitals, they created all kinds of problems at home. You can see this in the Sahel region, um, the sub-Saharan uh, African region just below, below the Sahara Desert, where uh, a lot of countries got into a lot of uh, domestic turmoil because they were diplomatically forced to become part of this. Then militarily um, the United States and others also started becoming more active in those regions and the result was incredibly in incredible instability. Um, the same for the, the havoc that was wreaked on um, Iraq and Afghanistan and um, in many ways the rise of ISIS and um, the, the problems in Syria can be tracked, traced back to this as well. Uh, you have a West that lost completely lost its purpose changed its purpose all of a sudden into we are gonna defend ourselves against this threat and we are gonna damage all this hard work that we've put in before we're gonna go into a completely different direction and create an awful lot of destruction in the world around us and with long-term consequences for the position of the west but also for the actual stability within the countries that were directly affected and so it did not also fundamentally change its foreign policy, but also you now have a changing nature of society. Is it, is it just that now we have to go through a security check at the airport? Or yeah, you, I, I assume this is more detailed, right? Yeah, and, and you mentioned this before. To be clear, I mean, even in the 1990s, there were security checks at airports, but they were of a very different nature. Uh, you, were, you were allowed to drink, uh, take water bottles and, and all that into the airplane. And, and, and uh, the, there, was, there was an awful lot of um, ease with respect to that uh, compared to the situation right now, right? Uh, but it's not just that. It is the introduction of laws giving security agencies much more power to intervene. Um, in uh, the United States, the infamous uh, Patriot Act, uh, creating new departments, the Department of Homeland Security, the, the giving the powers to government agencies to intervene in society that are decidedly anti-liberal, that are decidedly anti-Western at some point, right? Changing the essence of who you are out of fear for this external threat, a threat that is mostly made up, most of it doesn't actually exist, we are not under an existential threat from terrorism, but we are going to change who we are at our very essence. And this is what we've referred to before, this is terrible for any society, because that's exactly what the terrorists actually attempted in the first place, wanted to achieve, and you're giving it to them. You're handing it to them on a golden platter. You want us to be weaker? Here you go. We're making ourselves weaker. We're losing touch with our own identity, and we're now turning ourselves into some kind of Orwellian world where we are only um, interested in our own security, in our own safety. We're no longer interested in wider identity issues. And, and here, I, I'm going to have to provoke this again uh, because I asked this question uh, very naively uh, about four years ago in class, but I have nothing to hide. 
Um, Boulder, I have nothing to hide. Why, why would I? Why would I worry that my country's security agencies are, are reading my text messages? Why is this a problem? It's 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 a really interesting um, question that often comes up, right? And I think that the best way to explain it here is uh, that there are certain elements that control a government in a free, democratic, liberal country. There are certain elements, a sort of red lines that a government should not cross uh, cross even if crossing them tomorrow doesn't do much harm because you've got nothing to hide because that then goes down a path of losing the very essence of that liberal democracy that the west is so proud of and is trying to um, claim as 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 a utopian future it is maybe maybe best put in the sense of Barack Obama can impose certain laws and we can trust Barack Obama because of the person who he is. I'm not saying we can. I'm just saying that this is often a, a hurt story. We can trust Barack Obama not to abuse them. We can trust Barack Obama that he wants to respect U.S. law and he wants to respect um, the basic pillars of what makes the United States a free liberal country. But by imposing, the, by, by putting those laws in place, he cannot control his successor. His successor can actually abuse those. And what if his successor turns out to be a fascist, turns out to be someone who doesn't respect liberal laws, who doesn't respect um, the very essence of uh, American freedoms? And interestingly enough, his successor was Donald Trump. I'm not going to make any claims, claims about Donald Trump. But even if you take Donald Trump out of the equation, the moment a government is allowed to pass certain red lines is the moment that the future becomes very dark because you only need one malicious government in the future, one group of leaders in the future to actually abuse the powers that they've been given. And and, and we know that this happens. And this, this is not that one day from the other there will be a coup turning the United States into a fascist state. But slowly over time, there's the erosion of freedoms. There's the erosion of sense of liberalism. There is a comfort level with the police and security services uh, overstepping bounds and checking your computer all the time. If you've got nothing to hide, why can't we check? Well, at some point, you're going to have something to hide because at some point, you're going to resist that government. And at that moment, you're lost because you no longer have those prote- those measures of protection that were in place before. And just to quote you again, uh, I think this was uh, yeah, this, this was a discussion we had during COVID. It's very easy to take freedoms away. Oh, no, well, yeah, it's, no, not necessarily freedoms away, but it's very easy to take power. And it's very difficult for a government to give that power back because theoretically now... See, theoretically, now that the, the threat of terrorism is not as imminent anymore in the United States, why isn't the United States government saying, "Okay, Patriot Act"? We that was a uh, it was maybe necessary twenty years ago, but now it no longer is. But why would the government do that, right? Because it's just so convenient and easy to have, and you get used to it at some point. Exactly, and that's that's a well-known idea, right? That's not a quote from me. That is not some brilliant thought that I once had. Uh, it's it, it's a well-known concept that governments are very reluctant to give up power. So every bit of power that you give them, they will stick with that most likely. And this is the nature of governments. It doesn't make governments evil. It's just how the the system works. Um, You as a government always believe that you're on the right side of history. You and you as the people in charge believe that you are doing the right thing and that you can be trusted. Uh, Barack Obama or Tony Blair believed that they could be trusted. And the moment that you give them power, their successors are not going to say, oh, I will give some power back to you. We don't like giving power back. 
and this is exactly why you have those red lines. This is why constitutions are such a fundamental aspect of societies. And constitutions should be very hard to change because you do not want governments to just mold their reach according to their own wishes. There need to be hard limits. And those hard limits are being undermined over and over again. And once you they are taken away, you most of the time cannot get them back. And this is exactly what we see with the war on terror. A lot of these measures were taken in 2004, 2005, 2006, because there was this obsession and deeply seated fear against terrorists. But now in 2022, most of that fear has receded. And yet you see that none of those measures have actually been um, revised or um, uh, deleted from the law books. France then had a state of emergency for two years. Um, and Macron then, then let it run out, but only because he then translated or transferred a lot of the powers under the state of emergency into actual law, where now... Um, Police basically has the has the power to just search um, to, to 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 search a house without even needing approval uh, with the approval from a from a court, or it's easier for them to restrict movement and so all of these type of things. So I mean, this is not something that only happened twenty years ago in the U.S., but it's also something that happened then in Europe uh, again after the Paris terrorist attacks. Absolutely, you can see it sliding down like that, right? I mean, slippery slope issue is is clearly there where step by step certain precedents are taken and then it becomes law then it becomes structural and it becomes very hard to reverse it or almost impossible to reverse it many of the very illiberal measures that were taken uh, because of covid were only possible because of the war on terror for example and there, and the last in last episode we talked about how there was never a discussion about COVID that was because we were already getting very used to the government taking a lot of lot of measures, whereas in the 1980s or 1990s, that would have been impossible because there was still a sense that the government was limited in its powers. Now, you can say this is great because the government should protect us from terrorists and it should protect us from COVID. But if you say that, you are ignoring the long-term identity of the society you live in and the long-term consequences. Yeah, which which was the second point, and the third point is that the the way the 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 West reacted to well to terror actually leads to more to more terrorism or to to more people employing the the tactic of of, uh, of terrorism. I mean, so we have this once domestically, um, but we also have this internationally. So so how does the the war on terror lead to more terrorism domestically? Well, so one of the things that it did. Um, is it equated essentially terrorism with Islam. And then people say, oh, no, 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 we always recognize that there were good Muslims as well. <laughs> but, but essentially what it did in the mind of Western audiences was Islam and terrorism are one. And the result is that it alienated many, many millions of Muslims living in uh, Western societies. Now, most of those are, in, in fact, almost all of them are decent human beings who would not go to violence. But there are, of course, what it does, it creates a breeding ground for a few of the more extremist elements of that group to say, hey, if my society doesn't recognize my right to be a Muslim, to, to practice my faith, then I'm going to resist that. I'm going to have an anti-reaction against that. And these people, lone actors that uh, then were inspired by this oppressive nature against their religion within Western societies, but also inspired by the images of 
Western society fighting their uh, Muslim brothers and sisters in in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, would then um, be more likely to turn uh, to violence and terrorist tactics themselves, right? So they felt alienated in Western society by this stereotyping of terrorism being the same as um, Islam. Now, and it's here, it's incredibly important to remember that terrorism, because it's not an ideology, it's a tactic, has been used by every single religion and non-religion, by atheists throughout history. There's, there have been Protestants, ter Protestant terrorists, there have been Catholic terrorists, there have been Jewish terrorists, there have been atheist terrorists of all different shapes and sizes. So this, this injustice and this irrationality of equating Islam with terrorism leads to internal friction against um, Western society. Almost none, and I, I will not say all, none of them because there are a few exceptions, but almost none of the terrorist attacks after 9-11 um, in Europe or uh, elsewhere were actually, well, in, in, in Western countries, were actually committed by a direct order from Al-Qaeda or ISIS, from people who were directly linked to that network. It was people who were inspired by the fight of Al-ISIS or the fight of Al-Qaeda, not Al-Qaeda or ISIS themselves. And that inspiration came from this horrible re anti-Muslim, anti-foreigner um, anti reaction that existed within the West. Yeah, and I mean, I think especially with the stereotypes, I mean, we, we can just do the experiment right now. If I say terrorist, what type of a person appears in your or in the listener's mind? Uh, is it someone with a long beard and somehow Middle Eastern looking? Or is it someone, um, I mean, because simply because the majority of terrorist attacks in the last five years in Europe were, were done by right-wing terrorists? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, or, if, or is it is it a skinhead? Uh, for for me, the image is someone who, who, who follows a lot of uh, uh, United States news and politics. The image comes to mind, school shooters, just, uh, just white Christian boys who take a gun and start shooting their fellow students in an American high school, right? That is that is that is that is the most likely. It's still not very likely. Most most likely way to die because of terrorism in the United States. But of course, that doesn't get anywhere near the attention that this global war on terror receives. Yeah, and uh, so so we so we now looked into why this why the war on terror um, leads to more terrorism domestically, but also internationally. This is the case. And I think the intuition here is, is very easily uh, explained where a foreign power is coming to your country. Um, maybe a, a drone uh, sends some form of missile towards your house, uh, kills your dad. And probably because, I mean, let's be honest, uh, there's a lot of civilian casualties in both wars when we look at Iraq and Af Afghanistan, also what, what happens in Syria. So there's a lot of civilian casualties. So now your dad uh, gets killed um, and maybe your sister as well. And suddenly you have all the family members hating on, on, the, on this foreign aggressor who's coming to your country and killing your parents. And so, so with that, I mean, in a very simplistic term, uh, that kind of leads to, to more hatred as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important to realize that, uh, to remember that most, by far most people in the world, I would hope our listeners as well, uh, do not automatically turn into murderous animals the moment that a family member of theirs gets killed or murdered. Um, hopefully you still have a relatively um, intact internal psychological structure that keeps you from doing crazy things. But we do know that terrorism typically happens when people are pushed to the edge 
um, pushing people to the edge, and especially with people with certain personality characteristics, they will more likely to become terrorists if they feel great injustice has been done to them. Because that's what terrorism is often about, feeling that the system is being unjust and the only way to fight the system is through terrorist tactics. That is, that is how it often starts. And when you have an American drone killing your family, a family that had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda or nothing to do with ISIS, killing your children, killing your parents, then of course the likelihood, the chances of you turning to terrorism or at the very minimum to turning anti-Western are much higher. It, it takes a very special personal strength to rationalize the murder of your family. And so that's exactly what happened over and over again. And we mentioned Obama before and um, we know that under Obama at least, but this is a, a, this is a modest estimate, at least thousands of people, innocent civilians, were killed because of drone strikes under Obama. Um, that, that act alone means that you've got thousands of families grieving because of some missile that they never saw coming from a country that is thousands of kilometers away um, that have ruined their lives. And now you've got all those people with anti-Western sentiment, anti-American sentiment, and some of them will be willing to pick up arms. On top of this, and I mean, this is a very clear cut psychological case of people reacting uh, by being, by injustice being done to them. But there is the more complex foreign policy issue as well, right? The long term foreign policy items of Western um, decision making have, have led to a world where the West is no longer in any way, shape or form seen as a beacon of you know, of hope or a beacon of utopia, uh, utopian future that everyone should, should strive for. Things such as Guantanamo Bay, this place in Cuba where, the, where Americans put certain prisoners and just forgot about all the basic human rights that prisoners are supposed to have. Uh, the, the pictures from Abu Ghraib, Ghraib prison in Iraq, where prisoners were tortured by American soldiers. Stories of um, now um, SAS soldiers. There are stories uh, that the BBC published recently, SAS soldiers in Afghanistan killing uh, people who were uh, hand-tied and who were not a direct threat to them, just murder, essentially. Those kinds of stories lead to the West no longer being seen as a beacon for hope and everything that's good in life. And as a result, um, the West has caused itself an awful lot of pain and hardship. The SAS soldiers are British Special Forces, right? Yeah, that's it. That's, yeah. uh, that's it. And, and, and I mean, there's, there's now an investigation going on how much of the current allegations are true, we don't know for sure yet, but we know for a fact that a lot of these uh, issues have happened with Australian soldiers in the past, with American soldiers in the past. This is incredibly damaging to the Western reputation and damaging to foreign policy aims. Um, so yeah, on this note, then what is the future? Um, will the West ever get away from its obsession on, on the war on terror? I mean, we've had four years. No, well, no, not no. More like two and a half years of a distraction where first it was COVID, now it's the war in Ukraine. Um, I mean, at least I do not, do not feel like terrorism is such a big thing in the news anymore. So what's the future? No, that's that's absolutely true. Um, terrorism has quietly receded with all the laws still being in place, which is the thing that's important to remember here. Um, however, these kind of things have a, have a way of rearing their ugly head again um, after a while, right? So uh, the war on terror is essentially gone. People don't care anymore. People are not afraid of terrorism because it hasn't killed any significant numbers uh, recently. 
Um, but the basic idea of terrorists being there as a threat to Western society is still very much alive and can be activated very quickly again. Even now with the Ukraine war, you can see a lot of uh, news articles trying to link somehow the Ukraine war with potential terrorism in the future and all that. There is a lot of uh, talk about this. Uh, the main question though is what um, will happen in the what will happen with our own identity right do we will we learn the right lessons from this will we look at the past 20 years and say wow we made made some really really big mistakes we did a lot of damage abroad we caused an awful lot of hardship to other countries that should that were not responsible for 911 um, in any way and yet uh, we cause death and destruction we've changed our own identity are we going to be able to reverse that somehow and unfortunately the answer is very likely no because it's very easy to have terrorists as an enemy um, but bad foreign policy is difficult to change right it's very difficult to actually go and see what what can we do better how can we how can we actually relate to the rest of the world and to ourselves in a more constructive more productive way that is a very hard job very hard task and it's much easier to sort of have those terrorists as a potential enemy whenever we need them whenever our psychology requires them to be activated in our minds and and we can once again fear them well, this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the Western obsession with terrorism. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at reiagroup.org. As always, this is also in the post description uh, below. And we will try to incorporate your feedback in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we attempt to burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Um, Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I assume it's not um, one, one, one man's terrorist is another person's uh, freedom fighter because we avoided that quote quite well. But uh, which one did you prepare for us today? Yeah, I thought uh, we'd avoid that cliche. Uh, no, I chose the last three lines from Kavavi's famous poem, uh, Waiting for the Barbarians. There are no barbarians any longer. Now what's going to happen to us without barbarians? Those people were kind of a solution.